0: And Lord, we have sung the praises of your Son, our King and our Savior, our Lord whom we adore. And we sing these songs not simply because they are tradition for us, but because in our hearts we love your Son. And so praise you, Father, for the privilege. Praise you for the joy it is to be in your house this morning on this special week for your church, as we remember what the world has forgotten and cares not to know, and that is that your Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, is alive, and that he came. He was the incarnation of God when he arrived in Bethlehem, and some received him and others rejected him. But, O Father, by your grace, he is ours. And we are his. And so we worship him to your great glory and to our own great joy. And so we ask, Father, would you come by your Spirit and convict our hearts and inform our minds and change us? Give us eyes that can see so that we can know how you want us to change in the way that we think and the way that we live. Help us to be honest as perhaps we see ourselves on the pages of Holy Scripture, and be glorified in this time. May Jesus Christ be proclaimed accurately as Lord. May you protect us from error, and all of it to the praise of your glorious grace. For we pray in the name of our Savior Jesus, amen. Well, this is Christmas week, and what a joy it is uh, each year to come and, and dive into a portion of The Christmas story or from some other passage in the Bible that reflects on the incarnation of Christ. Uh, One of the things I did this past week was to go through all of the messages that I preached out of the Gospels to find if there was anything that I missed, and indeed, uh, much of chapter two I have not yet preached of the Gospel of Matthew, and so that's where we will spend our time this week and next week. Normally, I don't know about you, but... um, When I think of the Christmas story, I tend to picture in my mind that sweet, picturesque scene of Mary and Joseph and the cattle in the stall and, you know, kind of under that beautiful, starry night, a few shepherds kneeling in the background, maybe a few wise men uh, kneeling in the foreground with their gifts. Um, When I was growing up, my mom always set up a manger scene, and, and I always had the privilege of taking the ceramic angel and and twist-tying him to the top of the manger where it would look like he was overhead. So we got to have the obligatory angel over the manger. And, and all of them are perfectly positioned around this sweet little baby wrapped in cloths and quietly sleeping in a, in a wooden manger. That's, that's what I think of. Is that what you think of? What I don't usually think of when I imagine the original Christmas story is a suspense-filled, cloak-and-dagger action saga involving geopolitical espionage, attempted assassination, the wanted massacre of innocent victims, international asylum, supernatural intervention, and a top-secret protection program for securing the life of the world's future king. But that is the true story of Christmas reality this is what the christmas story involves and you don't need much of an imagination to see it many scholars believe that matthew's unique take or his approach his angle in presenting to us the gospel of jesus christ is that matthew uniquely presents jesus as king he is king of kings hence the beginning in chapter 1 where we have the record of the genealogy of the messiah The son of David. Why son of David? Because David was the king. The Messiah was to reign on the throne of the king. And the whole point of the genealogy is to substantiate Jesus' claim that he is this Messiah. And the rest of chapter 1 is about the scandal of the incarnation, the doubts that were associated with his birth, um, and Mary's pregnancy and that maybe this is not the authentic Christ child, maybe something more nefarious was going on here, but when Matthew sets out to write this gospel, his goal is to address those issues and to establish for us that Jesus is not just Savior, he is King. He is the King. In fact, the idea of kings and kingdom. In, uh, in the book of Matthew, he addresses it, speaks of it at least 75 times that I could find in the gospel of Matthew. And so it should be no surprise to discover this theme right from the beginning of the story of Jesus' birth and early childhood. He is king, who is come as the savior of the world. And not just come, but sent sent by his Father to be the Savior of the world, to all who would receive him, to all who would believe. Now, we're going to spend our time this morning and next week thinking through chapter 2 of Matthew's Gospel, which is about kingdoms in conflict. In fact, Matthew is about a lot of things, and these two chapters, there is so much compressed into this, the history, the background, the themes, that. Matthew has very specific things that he wants to communicate, and there are so many of them that there's no way that I'm going to be able to condense this. Just to give you an idea, my typical sermon, including this week, is seven or eight small pages in length. Uh, My big challenge was, when I got done the research, to compress 27 pages of research into seven, and so you're only getting some of this, and it is magnificent. It's like holding a diamond before you and saying, there's 25 different facets on this diamond, and we only have time to look at three. But they are glorious. And so we're going to spend our time here looking at this kingdom, and the two kingdoms in conflict, namely the kingdom of Herod and the kingdom of Christ. In the first scene of this story, picking up with Matthew chapter 2, Matthew introduces us to the primary characters before the arrival of a very unexpected delegation from afar. But we'll get to that. Let's talk about the characters. The main characters of this story are the two individuals between whom mortal conflict will soon erupt. Namely, Jesus the baby and Herod the king. Now, we don't have time to refresh on the story of Jesus' birth. You know the story of his birth. Matthew simply tells us here at the beginning of chapter 2 that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He simply tells us that the initial setting is Bethlehem sometime, and scholars debate how long at this point, when the Magi show up, how long has it been? Some say, well, maybe two years, others maybe Not as long, I I, I tend to, and we don't have time to talk about it, but I tend to ascribe to the view that it didn't take as long because they didn't live that far away. But we can talk about that at another time. Matthew doesn't tell us here about the shepherds, Luke does. The shepherds who were visited by the multitude of the heavenly hosts announcing the arrival of the infant king. And certainly that's an important part of the gospel narrative. But the most significant element of the story that we need to focus on First is this, namely, that Jesus was born when Herod the Great was king. It's extremely significant. You can hardly understand the story without understanding that significant element of the story. Now, there are several different Herods, and even after the first service, people ask me, was, help me understand, was it this Herod or that Herod or the other Herod? And I said, no, it was this Herod and not that Herod or the other Herod. Um, (laughs) It was Herod the Great. Now, there were a number of men who were named Herod. It was basically Herod the Great and his sons who were all interesting individuals. And um, on various degrees of the hostile spectrum and the evil spectrum, uh, they were all interesting. Herod the Great was an incredibly complex and troubled individual, to say the least. Now, here's some of what I'm going to compress into a very small statement. But let's, just to give you a feel for who Herod was, okay? Racially, he was Arab. Now, I didn't know that before this week. He was Arab. His father was a descendant of of Jacob's brother. Remember Jacob, who was renamed Israel, Jacob had a brother, and his name was Esau, Esau who sold his birthright for a pot of red soup, right? And um, from Esau came not the children of God, not the children of Israel, whose name was Jacob, but rather the children of Esau, who were later called the Idumeans, who lived in a country, their country became Idumea. You say, well, I'm not going to remember that. Here's something you probably, most of you will probably remember. Remember that Indiana Jones movie, The Temple of Dune, and they come to the end and there's that canyon that they walk into, what do they call it, the, the, ca- the uh, Canyon of the Crescent Moon or something like that, I don't remember. And they go down in this canyon and it's this beautiful limes or, or, or red kind of sandstone and he comes upon this temple that's carved out of the wall, remember that? Some of you are, are too embarrassed to say, yes, I've actually watched that movie. But listen, that's a real place, and where that's located is in Jordan, and it's a place called Petra, and that is a real temple carved in stone, and it is right at the center of the land of Idumea, the descendants of Jacob, whose name means red, and oddly enough, ironically enough, I'm sorry, not Jacob, Esau, thank you for correcting me. Esau, whose name means red, and you go there and everything is red. And even the stew that he ate in the Hebrew means red stuff. But there he is. This is the line from which Herod came. He was not a Jew. He was a Gentile through his bro- through Jacob's brother Esau. So racially he was an Arab. He was from the kingdom of Edomia, but religiously, he was Jewish. At about 135 BC, the Jewish Jewish ruler, Hyrcanus, conquered the Edomians and on pain of death required them, forced them to become Jews, which most of them did. So Herod was raised in a household that was very familiar with Jewish law Jewish culture, the sacrificial system, and so racially he was Arab, religiously he was Jewish, culturally Herod was a Greek, he spoke Greek, it was his first language. In fact, he repeatedly attempted to transform Jerusalem into a Greek city, and he would have succeeded if the Jewish authorities there were not so strong and determined to keep it the city of the Lord, the city of God, a Jewish city. And so politically, uh, uh, culturally he was Greek, but politically, and here's the fourth thing, politically he was Roman. He was Roman. In all the major military conflicts in which he was involved, some of them as a Roman soldier, some of them kind of on his own, he always sided with Rome, in fact, the very reason he was the ruler over Israel at this time was because Caesar had appointed him to that post. Herod reigned over the lands of Judea for 37 years, during which time the Roman Senate itself gave him this title. Are you ready? Now this is going to make sense to you. The whole story is going to start making sense at this point. The Roman Senate gave him a special name, and it was King of the Jews. Isn't that interesting? He's a really complex man. Racially Arab, religiously Jewish, culturally Greek, politically Roman. Now there's a conflicted soul if there ever was one. In his early years, Herod was an ambitious guy. He did a lot of great things for Israel and God's people. This was the Herod who built Israel's colossal temple complex. If you know anything about Old Testament history, you know the first temple was called Solomon's Temple. The second temple was, it's called Herod's Temple, named after the guys who built the respective temples. Now, there was one kind of in the middle there that Zerubbabel built, but, but really, when Herod came along, he built it on the same site and left some of the original things there. He just built everything around what Zerubbabel had laid and beautified it and modified it and made it a spectacular wonder of the world. He was the one who built it. This was Herod the Great. In his latter years, however, Herod became a paranoid and ruthless murderer. He is looked upon by history as the evil genius of his day. Evil genius. A genius because he, on the one hand, he was able to conceive of and build some of the most magnificent buildings the world had ever seen. And his organization of society was, was hardly matched anywhere else in the world. And yet with the other hand he murdered anyone and everyone who seemed to pose the slightest threat. And sometimes he murdered them in large groups, hundreds of people, all at the same time. At one point, he suspected there was going to be some resistance a revolt. Some people were demonstrating, and so he sent his soldiers in and massacred the whole group. Some of them were there just as Jewish pilgrims come to offer their sacrifices. Very few of them probably were actually revolting, but he didn't care. Kill them all. And he did. Josephus tells us that he had his own wife and her two brothers executed because he suspected that maybe they were fooling around with some treason. He also had two of his sons strangled. And his other sons, at least a couple of them, put in prison to keep them out of his way. In fact, it was so dangerous to be a relative of Herod. It was so dangerous to be one of Herod's relatives that Emperor Caesar Augustus reportedly said that it was better to be Herod's sow than to be his son because a sow had a better chance of surviving in an Israelite community. And so it comes as no surprise that this Herod tries to kill Jesus, tries to assassinate Jesus, for he alone, in his mind, would remain the only king of the Jews. By the way, that kind of fast forward, it it casts an important light, does it not, on what Pilate posted over Jesus' head when he was nailed to the cross. Who is this man? Pilate said, King of the Jews. By God's perfect providence, this is the national and political climate into which Jesus was born. And that may not have been a big problem for Jesus and his family, Mary and Joseph, if you assume that um, Word about his birth and who he was would have been kept quiet. I mean, if I were planning this, I'd I'd probably want Jesus to be born. Bethlehem would be a great place, some out of the way place, close enough that Mary and Joseph could go to Jerusalem and fulfill the required, uh, perform the required sacrifices, which they did but far enough away that they would be somewhat unnoticed. Just let him grow up. Let, let's not announce him. Let, don't let anybody know that he's even here until he's a man. That's probably how I would do it, a little more clandestine. But that's not how God does things. He's not afraid to be bold. He's not afraid to do things out in the open because no one can thwart his plan. No one can thwart his plan. There was no fear that somehow Herod the Great was going to disrupt God's plan. Who is Herod? You put your hand when you get home today, put it under running water at your sink and twist it and turn it. That's what God does with kings. It's like flipping water from, from, the, compa- from, the, uh, from the aerator side, you know, the, what do you call that thing in your sink? The disposal, i put it over in the disposal, I'll put it in the other side. Whatever I want. This is what God does with kings, like water running through his hands. And so in God's perfect providence, this is the political and national climax. And it may not have been a big deal, except that sometime after Jesus' birth an unexpected declaration delegation from a foreign country arrives in Jerusalem, and they're on a mission. You know what their mission is? Find the baby who has just been born king of the Jews. Let's read about it. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, In the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Just, Just in your mind or with your pencil, highlight that word troubled. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Now, there's a significant amount of mystery shrouding the identity of uh, the Magi and their origin, where they come from, what country did they come from. The traditional view, and the view that I have espoused in the past, is that they probably came from either Babylon or Parthia, which was kind of an offshoot of Babylon, more recent scholars, however, put them much closer to Israel, maybe in Jordan or someplace just outside of Israel, some one of the Arab countries. The fact is, however, we don't know much about these men except they were apparently well-educated. They were wealthy stargazers who saw something in the sky that indicated to them that the king, a king had been born in Israel, and not just any king, the king. The king of the Jews. And you might ask, how in the world did they know that a strange phenomenon in the heavens was actually indicating that a Jewish king had been born? And not just any king, but a king worthy of leaving everything that you have to go and see him. The promised king. Well, nobody knows for sure, but some suspect that the Magi knew about a prophetic statement that was made by an unlikely source. When you think of the prophets, you think of Jeremiah, you think of Isaiah. I mean, these were Micah, who made that great prophecy, we'll look at here in a minute, because Matthew quotes it. And other famous and faithful prophets of Israel, but not this one. No, this one was, this prophecy was made by a guy by the name of Balaam. His favorite pet was, you remember, his talking donkey. And Balaam, you remember the story, children of Israel are wandering the deserts, and one of the kings wants to wipe them out, and they think the best way to do that is to handle this spiritually. Let's get Balaam, the soothsayer, kind of the witch doctor of the land, let's bring him to curse Israel. And so they get him up on the mountain, and he starts, starts in on trying to curse the people of God, and God fills his mouth with blessing. And so the king says, well, maybe this is a bad spot to do this. Let's go to another place. And they do it three times. And every time he speaks, he pours out blessing. And this is one of the things that he says. He said, again, this is Balaam. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Isn't that interesting? A star out of Jacob, who's Jacob? Israel. A scepter, what is that? That's kingdom. It's a ruler. It's a monarch. Coming out of Israel in fulfillment of prophecy. What I'm suggesting is it may very well be that Balaam was speaking, prophesying about the future messianic king who would one day arise from Israel As a descendant of David, and as Isaiah would explain further, he will reign forever and ever. Now, if you happen to be the king of Israel, and you get a message like that, that the king who will reign forever and ever is born, that's going to be a problem. In any case, somehow the Magi knew that the Messiah had been born. How they responded to this revelation? Well, you know how they responded. They did what all men should do. Are you ready? They left everything in order to find him. Remember what Jesus told the disciples as he called them one by one? Drop your nets, follow me. Come out of your tax booth, follow me. Stop being a zealot, follow me. Follow me. Leave everyone. Leave everything. Unless a man is willing to leave his father and mother and his sisters and brothers to follow me, he cannot be a part of me. And you know what? We don't know anything about these guys or or what it is they actually saw. No explanation. All we know is they dropped everything except their treasure, and they found Jesus. And when they found him, they even gave that to him. That's the mark of a true disciple. It's amazing, amazing grace of God. Now, since they were looking for the new Jewish king, it was only logical that as they were planning this, they saw the star, they concluded that the king of the Jews is born. Jews, okay, so let's go to the capital city, capital city of Jerusalem. If the king of the Jews is born, everybody in the capital ought to know about it. And they get there and they find out something astounding. Nobody knows. And nobody's even heard of this. I mean, really, the only people who know about it is Jesus, uh, who's not talking yet and mary and joseph some shepherds some people in town heard the story of what the shepherds said they saw outside i mean and who believes shepherds nobody believes the shepherds they they weren't even allowed to testify in court and so word hadn't really spread mary and joseph just treasured these things in their hearts so we don't know how many magi actually arrived But it must have been quite an entourage, quite a large caravan. Why? Because Matthew says all Jerusalem was aware of their presence. Isn't that what we read? Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. It's a big group. I mean, when you think about the manger scene, you got the camels, that's probably the part of it they get right, except there probably ought to be a lot more camels, a lot more men. There wasn't three. It's not like they, they were going to bring gold and frankincense and myrrh, so we only need three people. This was going to be a fairly extensive trip. This was an international delegation. They were coming from another country, whether it was a country a long ways away or a country maybe not so far away on the other side of the Jordan, nobody knows. But they came, and it was a pretty big group of delegates who were coming, and they were coming to recognize and honor their neighbor king. And when they got there, they found out the, um, the existing king didn't know anything about it. It wasn't his son. It wasn't his son. And besides that, he'd already killed most of his sons or had them in jail. This was indeed an unexpected delegation. And their presence in Jerusalem was not a welcome sight to Herod. We know that because Matthew tells us that the unexpected delegation produced a very agitated ruler. Look at verses 3 through 6. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people he inquired of them where the Messiah, that is, the Christ, was to be born. And they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so you see, Herod was not the rightful king of Israel. He was not the rightful king. The Romans had put him up. The Romans had set him on the throne, but he was not from the line of David because he was not from the line of Israel, who was Jacob. He was from the line of Jacob's wicked brother, Esau. And so he wasn't a part of the line. He wasn't a rightful king. He was a usurper of the throne. And this fact caused most of the Jews to hate him, despite the fact that he had done all these wonderful things and and was in the process of this 40-year process of building this colossal thing, this gigantic temple compound. I told you when we were examining in the book of John early on when Jesus was in the temple and he turned over the tables, and we talked about the temple court, the court of the Gentiles, and how many acres... That area alone covered, it is magnificent, or was. But this fact caused most of the Jews to hate him. The fact that he wasn't the true king, he was a usurper. If someone had been rightfully born king, Herod's job would be in jeopardy. And for Herod, this was a serious problem. He was the leader of the mafioso of his day. And we got to take him out. We got to kill him. I mean, this is serious stuff. This isn't Hollywood. This is real. What are we going to do with this baby? We got to find him and we gotta kill him. And by the way, Herod knew the Jews didn't love him. In fact, he knew they hated him. In fact, Josephus tells us, at the end of Herod's life, when he, was, when he knew he was going to be dying in a matter of, of days, he gave orders, gather all the noblemen from the region around Jerusalem, bring them to an amphitheater, and when I die, execute them all. And here is why. He wasn't worried about rulers at that moment. You know what he was worried about? Nobody was going to weep for him in his death. He wanted weeping to happen on the day of his death. And so he gave orders that all of the nobles of Israel would be killed. Now, thankfully, the order was never carried out. But this is the kind of man he was. I mean, you think you've seen or heard about Al Capone or, you know, some of the others who were really, you know, just dastardly wicked people. They had nothing on Herod. They had nothing on Herod. Herod was not only an evil genius, he had all power. He could do almost anything he pleased. And the emperor gave him a long leash. And so here we are. This is a big problem. Herod the king just finds out another king has been born, a rival king. And though he often attempted to pass himself off as a true Jew, here his true colors really begin to shine. If he had been a true devotee to Judaism and to Scripture, he would have rejoiced greatly to hear about the fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy. He would have been excited, to say the least, that he got to be the person who transferred the kingdom of men over to the kingdom of God's Christ. But that wasn't his perspective at all. He doesn't care about the messianic prophecy except that it scares him. And so he views this new child as a mortal threat. That word that I told you about a few minutes ago, when he's, when at verse three it says, Herod and Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Troubled? Maybe in the ESV it might be disturbed. Um, the Greek word here literally means turmoil or to be terrified. He was really disturbed. He was scared. This this was a big, big, big deal for him. And he's, he's way overreaching. But his plan is not to worship this king, but to kill him. But it's not only his devotion to Judaism that's called into question here, it's also his knowledge of Scripture. Herod reveals his superficial knowledge of essential prophecy. I mean, this was really essential. I mean, all the Jews were looking for the Messiah. They all knew where he was going to be born except him. And so he calls this this um, this forum, you know, like bringing the Westminster group together uh, to, to come up with a, a new document or to... To do some exclusive research, something that hadn't been done before. He thought this was a really big, complicated deal. i got to get as many guys working on this as possible. we got to find out where he's from. So gather them all. Gather all of the chief priests, which is really interesting, because Israel only had one chief priest, and he was supposed to reign for life. But that's not the way they had it set up. They had it all twisted. They had the chief priests who... Uh, uh, would pass it down from father to son, father to son, or someone could buy the position. Anyway, there was a whole group of them. There was kind of this guild of former chief priests. And they were brought in, plus all the scribes. This was going to be this big deal. And they get them together. Okay, Herod, what's your question? We're ready to start studying. And and he says, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? And they're like, don't you know? You didn't need to get us all together. Micah 5 2. And here's what it says. Look at verse 6. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means the least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Um, Matthew is paraphrasing a little bit from this passage and really mixing it in with another passage because he has a point, but it is interesting, something that he left out that Micah said. Let me read that, let me read Micah's part of this text again and include the part that Matthew left out. It reads like this, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, and here's the missing part, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient times. You know what that means? This king is is not a normal human king. He's immortal. And I wonder if Matthew maybe didn't leave it out Maybe the scholars who told, um, told Herod let that part out in fear that they would be the next to be strangled or beheaded. Because this next king is not just a, a boy who would be born in Bethlehem and, and rise up to be king of Israel. He would be the Lord's Christ who will reign forever and forever. And he is from of old. He is from before time. And this is the God incarnate. And this is really none other than the one whom the prophet Isaiah said would come when he, when he wrote in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7, that famous passage that gets sung every Christmas and Brent read earlier, for unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father and Prince of Peace, of the Now, here's the part that would have been really disturbing to Herod. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. And in case that wasn't strong enough, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Take your best shot, Herod. God's design to establish his king will not be thwarted. And God will relentlessly pursue the the crowning of his son until it is accomplished. And everything is going as planned. The child who was born, whose star shone in the Night sky was none other than the Lord's promised Christ. That's what Matthew wants us to see. He was born in a small village not five miles south of Jerusalem where Herod lived. Now that interests me. The geography here is important. We're not talking about, you know, taking a a week-long one-way trip, needing lots of preparation. I mean, how would you have responded if you were one of these scribes? I hope that if I were one of the scribes who had been asked this question and gave the answer and realized what was happening, I would hope that I'd go home and I'd say, Honey, let's uh, pack a little bit of water and some beef jerky. My wife likes to take night hikes. And let's let's go take a night hike, bring the kids. Where are we going? Not far, five miles. Let's go down to Bethlehem. I think something's happening there that we need to see. He may be here. Who? The Christ, the one that we have been waiting for, may be here. I hope we would have had a heart and be willing to take whatever risks to go. Do you see that missing here? Herod? He didn't he didn't leave his palace to take a five-mile hike to see the true king of Israel, the scholars, the scribes, none of them left. None of them did a thing except Herod began plotting the assassination. It's amazing. You know what these men were? Here's a term for you that I've used often here, and I think it's so critical, and I know people don't like this term. They were religious unbelievers. You know why people don't like that term? Some will say, Are you questioning someone's faith? And I say, Not I. Not I. But the Word of God would have you question your faith. The Word of God would say things like Test yourself to see if you are in the faith, examine yourself. And Peter would say the same thing. Be all the more diligent to make certain of his calling and choosing you. You know what that means? Both of those texts. Second Corinthians 13 and the other one, 2 Peter 1, I think. Um, you know what he's saying? Don't take your salvation for granted. You know why that's important? Because I've heard all of your testimonies. All of you who are members of Calvary Bible Church, I've heard almost every one of them. And I'm just telling you, nine out of ten who come for church membership, they share their testimony with me and and the other elders. And this is what I hear. Very similar story, very similar to mine. I grew up in a pretty Christian home, went to church every Sunday, baptized, took the Lord's Supper every time it was served, involved in ministry. And um, and then in sometime in my 20s, I there was such sin in my life and. And one time I heard the gospel. It must have been the 10,000th time I heard the gospel. And it was like, I never heard this before. And God, all of these years I've been religious and yet I've been living in unbelief. It's been wrong with me. I remember when my mom and dad moved here uh, eight years ago, give or take. And uh, when they said they were going to move here, I thought, oh, no. This is it's not going to be good. My dad and I don't get along very well. And we hadn't. And I never understood why. And they said they were going to move here. And I thought, my ministry's over. It's just a matter of time. <laughs> and, uh, and they came. And they moved. Uh, got a little house about four blocks from us. And they were here for seven years until my dad passed away. Uh, just a little over a year ago. And, uh, and they came. And you know what? Never once did we have a single conflict. It's like when he got here, everything changed. And the first year he was here, I think it was the first year, we had that glorious men's retreat. Some of you guys remember that because God changed your lives during that weekend. It's amazing. And I remember I was out Saturday morning and I was telling everybody, I said, everybody go outside. You know, we just heard some messages from the Word and, and I spoke and Charlie spoke and Damon Cup spoke because we couldn't get a speaker to come in. And we said, well, we got the word of God, we can, we can say something. And so we did, and, and it was like the Holy Spirit showed up and did such marvelous things. And Saturday morning, I said, okay, everybody just kind of pair up and go outside and pray together and confess it and do whatever God wants you to do. Just find us on the ground and sit, and I don't know what. And I, so I'm out there doing my pastor thing, and I'm going, okay, those guys are taking care of anybody out on their own, somebody I need to shepherd and minister to here. And my dad comes up, and he kind of pulls on my arm, and he says, uh, son, can we talk? And I'm, not, I'm like, dad, not now. I'm working here. And he said, well, I understand, but can we talk for a couple minutes? And I said, well, sure. And we walked over to this little gazebo there at Riverbend, and he just burst out into tears. And the curtain fell, and the blinders came off. And he said to me, if he said it once, he said it a 100 times, what was I thinking all of those years? I was a deacon in my church. I served in every church that we were a part of and caused trouble in almost every place we went. What was I thinking? I thought I was a child of God. I never understood you. And he said, I never understood my dad. All of a sudden, I understand my dad. His dad was the grandfather that I tell you about frequently. He was the godliest man I ever knew. And My dad repeatedly would say, I finally understand him. You know what he was all those years? in church, doing all the stuff. He was a religious unbeliever. And so are most of us. Most of us, not all. But most of us when we came to Christ. That's where these guys are. The very Christ himself is five miles away from their office. And though they are religious, they haven't got the heart to go. They don't love him. They don't love God. They love themselves. And religion is just something to promote themselves. That's what was happening here. The reason Matthew cites this fulfilled prophecy in um, Micah 5.2 was to prove to us that this was indeed the king. He's fulfilling prophecy here. Prophecy that he couldn't he couldn't um, manipulate. I mean, nobody decides where they're going to be born. How he was born was fulfilled in chapter 1, and where he was born was fulfilled, the fulfillment of prophecy in chapter 2. And yet, even though the scribes and the, and the Pharisees and Herod himself knew, they would not bow, and they would not go. The final phrase of Matthew's quotation here is not from Micah where he says, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It actually comes from 2 Samuel chapter 5 in which godly shepherding formed part of the role assigned to the Israelite kings. All of Israel's kings were not to view themselves merely as kings, but shepherds of God's people. They were to be the national pastor of God's people. They failed. Again and again and again, they just took advantage of their situation, their circumstances, their wealth, their power. And that old phrase, power corrupts, but absolute power corrupts absolutely. Absolutely. You see it repeated again and again and again in the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah. And so what they often failed to carry out, this promised Messiah would now perform properly once he is king. In any case, the answer from the chief priests and the teachers of the law, or as King James says, the scribes, was apparently carried back to the Magi by Herod himself. They were, no doubt, put up in a court somewhere, having their camels Fed and Herod decides that he's going to do this personally because he wanted to do it privately because he's not just conveying information now. He is on a mission of espionage. There is information that he needs to discover from these men so that he can plan the assassination of this future king. You get it? And so he finds his way back to the Magi and verses seven and eight. We read about it. Then Herod secretly called the Magi, secretly called the Magi, and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. Why? He wanted to know when the child was born. How old is he? And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, "Go." Search for him carefully. For this, search carefully for this child. And when you have found him, report it to me so that I too may come and worship him. Now you know the truth behind that. Evil genius. This is what evil geniuses do. And so this is what he does. He's not going to worship. He sends them to worship. In the meantime, he's, plan, he's planning the king's assassination. And then verse 7, Herod asked them, when they had first seen the star, and this becomes critical later in the account in verse 16, it it showed that Herod was already contemplating the plan to get rid of this young king. He also instructed the magi to return to tell him the location of the king so he would know where to send the assassins. And he did it under the pretense of worship. You know, the, the greatest sin against God In the Bible, there are always sins that involve worship. False worship. And here, Herod is bordering on that already. But it'll be worse. You have to come back next week to hear that part. He had no intention of worshiping the baby king. Nevertheless, the Magi were determined to find this child, and by God's miraculous guidance, they would come to the very house where the family was staying in Bethlehem. And they would make an extravagant presentation. An extravagant presentation. Look at verse 9. After hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, went on before them until it came and stood over the place where the child was. And when when they saw the star, watch this, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. These are... Matthew is stacking superlative on superlative. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshiped him. And as if that weren't enough, opening their treasures, they presented him. They presented to him gifts of gold and frankincense. And myrrh. Okay, let's, let's rewind a little bit. Let's go back to the star. What was the star? Thousands are asking. What was the star? Well, it was obviously not an ordinary s- celestial phenomenon. This was no conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn and Mars, as, as some um, predict or have tried to use, uh, make some kind of explanation along those lines. It wasn't a supernova wasn't a comet what was it well we don't know for sure but here's the thing none of those theories accounts for the fact that this particular star hovered over one particular house in a little village called bethlehem you ever tried to align a star over a house <laughs> in a moving vehicle what's well, under that one it's under that one it's under that one it's under that one you know there it is I remember uh As each of our kids grew up and and got through their early years, um, there was always a point at which we'd be driving a car, driving, driving down the highway on a trip somewhere at night, clear sky, bright moon, and they would say, there was always a point in time when each one of them did this, I think, Daddy, the moon is moving with us. No matter where we go, it's still there. Now tell me, how looking at a star or the moon or any other planetary body is going to land you over a particular house. Impossible. Now, I understand a little bit about navigation. Boy Scout, right? And yes, you can use the stars to navigate direction. But it won't land you on an exact geographical spot. This was something else. This was something else. One scholar notes... Stars or planets naturally travel from east to west, according to the he- across the heavens, not from north to south, as this one apparently was. Could it be, he asks, that the star which the Magi saw and which led them to a specific house was the Shekinah glory of God? That same glory, that pillar of fire. By night, that led the children of Israel through the wilderness those 40 years. Perhaps this is what they saw in the east. And for want of a better term, they called it a star. All other efforts to explain this star are inadequate. And I agree. And I think of all the theories that I've heard, none of them work. Because at the end of the day, whatever it is has to hover over one house. And notice what the text says. When they saw the star, I mean, you, get the, you get the impression that they saw it at the beginning, they went, wow, that's unique. I mean, of all of our stargazing, we've never seen this star. And where was that prophecy? That prophecy, that pro- here it is star in the east, scepter king. This is the promised Messiah. We gotta go, we gotta go. Let's bring our treasure. Let's cross the border. Let's take the risk. Let's walk right into the capital city and say, we're not here to fight. We're here to worship. And they come. Nobody knows anything about the child. The scribes tell them through Herod where the child is. They find him. But on their way, I get the impression, they hadn't seen that star in a long time. They hadn't seen it in a long time. But they leave Herod's palace, and they start walking toward Bethlehem, and there it is. (laughs) And they explode with joy. And they start following it. Very much like the children of Israel followed their star. There wasn't a star. It was more like a burning cloud, similar to the burning bush. Whatever it was, We know this, it was the miraculous provision of God, the miraculous revelation of God that led these wealthy, learned Gentiles to the feet of a Jewish king. Despite their pagan background and powerful influence in the court of their homeland, the Magi recognized and worshiped Christ for who he was, for who he is, On the other hand, despite his role as legally installed ruler of Israel and his professed conversion to Judaism, Herod rejected the newborn king. Rather than worshiping him, he planned to assassinate him. His fears that this young boy would threaten his royal position of authority consumed him. And so he who killed at least two of his wives and two of his sons, and a host of others, was now planning to kill Jesus. And so we learn already, before the child ever says a word, before he's old enough to speak, before he's old enough even to say, Mama, or Abba. And we see at this early stage of his life, that the alliances Jesus will create will extend far beyond the boundaries of Israel and Judaism, while at the same time, he will threaten and alienate many who claim to know God in Israel. Even before he speaks, he draws a line in the sand and says, follow me or reject me, but being religious gets you nowhere. Gets you nowhere. What is Matthew's intending, what is he intending to teach us? I think the most important thing here that we learn in this part of the story is something about God. Yes, God had sent his one and only Son to Israel, and yes, Jesus was born Jewish in the line of David, just as the prophets were told. But this gospel that Matthew is writing for us in telling us of the glory of Jesus Christ. and why we should put all of our hope, all of our faith in him. This gospel was not for the Jews only. And Matthew makes that clear from the very beginning. It was for the Gentiles as well. It was for people like me and you. The first people who came to see Christ as a baby was a band of poor, lowly Jewish shepherds. It was for the Jews first. But then, the only other group that we know of who came to visit Jesus at his house was a group of Gentiles. Can you imagine Bethlehem? Full of poor people. Everybody lived in a one-room house. And honestly, I think that's where Jesus was born, not in a barn. And... We don't have time to talk about that. But in a one-room house with a place where the animals were brought into the house as every Palestinian house had, and there he was. and, And these messengers from afar come with this entourage of camels and wealth And language, I mean, talk about being out of place, these learned men. By how, ten, a hundred, how many would have come, but it would have caused no small stir. And here they show up in Bethlehem. And you got to think, the people of Bethlehem are saying, what is going on? First, the shepherds get a little crazy about a light that they see in the sky. They said they heard angels singing or shouting or whatever they were doing, something about a son. They came and they find him and they tell everybody that the Messiah is coming. Now this, this big entourage from Jordan or from whatever country they were from outside of Israel, now they're coming. Surely Herod knows about this. Surely they approve, that the crown approves of this. Here they are. What is going on? And what do these men intend to do? Are they coming to kill him? No. And they come to the child. They find him in the house. They lay out their treasures. And they bow. And they worship. This is amazing. Amazing. And the most amazing part of it was they were Gentiles. They were Gentiles. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ, from its very inception, was a message for the nations. Remember what the angel said to the shepherds? Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be for who? All the people. All the people. Who is that? Anyone who will believe. Anyone who will repent. Anyone who will do what these men did. Be willing to leave everything and worship him alone. This cloak and dagger story is about one who was born in obscurity, but who is recognized by outsiders as the one and only promised future king of Israel. The child whose birth is shrouded in suspicion of illegitimacy in chapter one. Is in fact God's legitimate and rightful king, as demonstrated in chapter 2. On the other hand, the legal rulers, both political and religious, by their clinging to positions of power and prestige, prove themselves to be illegitimate in God's eyes. They are usurpers. And this is only half the story. This is only half the story. But already, right, get the point. God is calling men everywhere to repent, to turn from wherever they are from and whatever they have, to seek him and to find him and to worship him. It is a call to not only repent, but to give up your allegiance to self to your rank, to your privilege, to your position, whatever that may be, and to submit yourself freely, willingly, and joyfully to the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is Christ Jesus. Incredibly, Isaiah, I think, foresaw the Magi coming. And it's statements in this passage that kind of give us clues that maybe they weren't from Babylon. Maybe they were from a nearby country. In any case, let me just read this for you. A somewhat familiar passage, though not as familiar as the Isaiah 9 passage that we read earlier. But Isaiah foresaw the Magi, I think, who would have come, and of the Christ, in this passage, he writes this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. Think the glory that the shepherds saw. For, behold, darkness will cover the earth, and deep darkness the peoples. And what a description of Jesus' time. But the Lord will rise up among you and his glory will appear among you nations think gentiles nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising lift up your eyes round about and see they all gather they come to you your sons will come from afar then your daughters will be carried in the arms then You will see and be radiant, and your heart will thrill and rejoice because the abundance of the sea will be turned to you. The wealth of the nations will come to you. A multitude of camels will cover you, and your young camels from Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba will come. They will bring gold and frankincense and will bear the good news of the praises of the Lord. That's amazing. I love that last phrase. What did they do? What did they do after they saw? We don't know where they went. We assume they went home, but we don't even know where home is. But they were Gentiles. They went to some Gentile land. What did they do when they got there? You know what they did? They did the same thing, the demoniac that Jesus healed. Remember what what he said? Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus said, No, no, no. Stay here. Go to your hometown. Tell them everything you've seen and heard. And you will bear the good news of the praises of the Lord. That's what they did. They went home and they told everyone they knew, We have found the Messiah. Beloved, there are really only two kinds of people in this world there are those who live in their own kingdom and will do just about anything to keep their idols of reputation and position, earthly pleasure, self-righteousness, you name it. And their religion. And they are the Herod types who are so consumed by self that they miss the glory of God's King. And they may call him Lord, but in the end, the Lord himself will say, why did you call me Lord, Lord, but did not do the things I told you? You were religious in name only. Depart from me. I never knew you. Your works bear that out. Your money bears that out. Your time bears that out. And then there's another group of people. There are those who are able to see that knowing Christ is more Valuable than anything this life can offer. They, like the Apostle Paul, are able to say, I count everything in my life loss compared to the privilege of just knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have given up everything and count it but rubbish that I may have And you know what? That kind of heart can only come to you by means of grace. The miracle of grace. You can't do anything to earn it. All you can do is ask for it. Ask God. If you're looking at your own heart this morning and saying, I wonder, I wonder if I'm a religious unbeliever. I'm wondering if I'm really any different than the scribes in Jerusalem. I wonder if I'm just a religious unbeliever. I don't, I don't spend time in the Word. I don't, I don't fellowship with Christ. I don't love God's people and God's Word and God's ministry and God's agenda. I'm just living for myself, and I know it. Beloved, this Christmas, this day, I plead with you. Be reconciled to God. Don't be proud like Herod. Humble yourself. Join the Magi. Come to the little town, the little poor house, and step in and get on your knees and worship. That's what Christmas is about. And all other junk is just trimming on the tree, literally. Beloved, this cloak and dagger story of Jesus' early life demonstrates God's Unyielding determination to provide a Savior for the world. And He has provided Him for you, if you will receive Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uncommon story, this amazing story that we never really hear, seldom hear in context at Christmas time. We hear select portions that make us feel warm and, and full. But the reality of your divine and sovereign in an intervention, your relentless determination to bring about salvation for your enemies, is almost unheard of even in churches around the world today. But, oh, Lord, you stun us by the simplicity of your word, And we thank you for giving it to us today. Give us hearts now that are willing not only to receive it, but to do something about it. In such a way that brings great glory to you and great joy to our own souls. For we pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.